0: American United Federal Credit Union can often help when others won't. They can often approve loans even if you've had trouble being approved in the past. Qualifying for membership is easy. Learn more at amucu.org.
1: Get to Old Navy for star-spangled style. Right now, everything's on sale, up to 60% off. That's right. Get everything from tees, shorts, dresses, and swim, all at 60% off. Now till July 7th at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid through 7-7, select styles only. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Sean Vanderhoven.
0: But we were working together as a team. We were really coming together, and we were we were that all the strategic capability and talents that were completely inactive were activated, and people started to work together to create a solution that we couldn't have come up with prior to that to solve the problems, and um, it was it was a wild success. And this simple thing of just listening to people.
1: This is another episode of our innovation and leadership series, where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is icollective.co/free. Again icollective.co free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founder started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, icollective.co childrescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Sean, thanks for being on the show. So glad to be here. So, uh, Sean Vanderhoven for everybody. He he's got a background coming from places like working with General Dynamics and Northrop and Siemens, and and now is really uh, getting into a different side of the world and doing his own thing and and helping bring groups together. Um, Sean, you know you've done these things where you've attracted the sea level people from the Apples and Twitters and and these. Google type organizations to come to the kind of programs you've helped to develop, um, but I think one of the things that was most interesting was uh, you were talking about back in the day running a project for Siemens and kind of it, you know it kind of had the the dramatic story arc of things not going as planned uh, and then really tapping into like the empathy of what's really going on for people to turn it around. Uh, can you can you start with that story for
0: us? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. I just also just want to say thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm a super fan. I love what you're doing. Uh, it's a great opportunity for me to be able to share with you some things that have happened to me from an empathy standpoint. And I'll, I'll start there with, with Siemens and, and then kind of move back from there. I was I was living in, in Germany at the time in Mannheim, and I was working on a project with some senior engineers at, e- at Siemens, and it was a large project. I was in way over my head. And to make it even worse, I was uh, young, probably a little arrogant, to be honest. Uh, I wish that wasn't the case, but you know, young Uh, you know, American kid living over in Germany. And I didn't really have any understanding for German culture. And I didn't have. So it was you who ruined our reputation over there. (laughs) Totally. somebody. Well, let me tell you what, if if, if you think about like the the stereotypical reason for why Europeans or other people hate Americans, I think that I would have actually just fit perfectly in that stereotype. (laughs) Unfortunately, I just have to admit that that's the case. And, And I think that one of the things that contributes to that is I was completely and totally unaware uh, just how people do things differently and how people think different. And I had been taught my whole life living in America that, you know, just the way that we do things is the right way and that our way is like the, you know, everybody wants to live in America. And I remember actually working on this project one time having a colleague kind of chastise me saying, you know, uh, everybody doesn't want to live in America. And I remember being shocked by this, but you know, that's kind of <laughs> I felt so stupid in this conference room when he said this in front of all these people and I was mostly predominantly Germans. And so, um, but what was going on was I was so I was here I am and this young arrogant kid we had uh, we were working for we were working to win this contract where we were going to be consolidating some network management systems for the Department of Defense, and Siemens was the the lead contractor on this and we you know we had to work with them well to be able to get this work and it meant a lot to the little software company that I was uh, working for. And, uh, you know, the project was failing. I was seen as kind of a young cowboy who did sloppy work. I wanted to, you know, develop software fast and throw it out into the wild. And that's not how they did things. They wanted to um, really be thoughtful and to listen to customers, but to, to take time to really make things right and to test things out and have everything be bulletproof and just right before it shipped out. And that was the Siemens way. And not only that, that's actually a German way, uh, you know, not predominantly to over um, in generalize, but that definitely was the culture in this part of Germany and the culture in Siemens to take the time to think through and really engineer solutions that met people's their customers' needs in a way that was right the first time. It's kind of like my dad always used to say to me, son, if you know, if you're not going to do it right the first time, don't do it at all because you're going to spend more time going back and fixing it the second time. And that, that was how they did things. But I, I was impatient. I was young. I thought, hey, we can just go ahead and throw stuff out there. The customer will help us test this out. And then we'll just keep on going and keep on innovating. And, and the truth was my strategy, my lack of understanding towards the way they did things, uh, we were failing. And I was scared to death because it meant massive amounts of revenue for our business, our reputation, and uh, I just couldn't figure out any way to make this work, and so I was I was at home one day, freaking out. Kind of, we, me and my wife were on a walk in this park. It's called the um, Luisen Park, right outside of Mannheim. Beautiful park. These cranes nest in these trees there, and so we're walking through, enjoying this part of Germany. And she said, "You know, Sean, uh, I think you should do this listening thing that you learned how to do when you were a kid." And I'll tell more more about that in a second. But and then we'll pause and kind of break, go back in time, and then come back to the story to give it the context, but. I uh, I said, you know, Annie. These ju- if how, I- how long had you been married at this point? Um, probably about eight years. Okay. And she said to me, you "No, know, I think you need to do this listening thing that you do with us at home that you learned when you were younger." And I thought to myself, "No, there's no way in the world I'm going to go grab these guys. They're double my age, double you know, um, uh, knowledge and everything that I've done." They 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 they. Um, uh, completely see things different than I do And I had established that and learned that and they didn't like me uh, on top of it that's not that's not a, that's not a good list <laughs> that's <always> I, helpful <laughs> i thought the last thing in the world they want is for me to go and grab them and say hey can i just listen to you can i just sit down and just well why don't we just go have a talk and all this listen to you i thought oh they they'd have a laugh at me so i told her i was like i don't know that i'm necessarily comfortable with trying that and so i didn't and two weeks later we were in a worse position and they were threatening to con- you know cancel the project that we were working on and she's like, you know, Sean, uh, my wife's name is Anne and Anne said, Annie uh, said, you know, I really think you actually need to go and just listen to these people and stop talking. You just need to shut up and listen. <laughs>
1: you know, <How> <laughs> I always you...
0: love that advice. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And of course, you can imagine my blood's boiling right now, right? Like my, we're on this walk and I can hardly believe she's telling me that all I need to do is go listen to solve this multimillion dollar problem that I have. But I thought about it for a little bit and I realized, you know what, that's actually the last ditch effort that I have here. I can't think of anything else to do. I'm out of my league. So I'm going to put that on pause for a second before I talk about what happened next and go back in time. When I was eight years old, I was mauled by a Great Dane. We were at the back of Carmody Jr. High School in Denver for an ice cream social for my brother's eighth grade year. And there was a guy who walked up with a Great Dane and a lab, a puppy – And my brother's friends were all in eighth grade and I was in second grade. And I thought to myself, um, uh, well, they first they said, hey, can we pet your dogs? This guy's name was Mr. McKeegan. And he said, yeah, sure, pet the dogs. Well, I looked up at the horse that was in front of me and I thought, I don't think I'm going to pet that dog. I think I'm going to pet the lab. Well, as I went to go pet the lab, the Great Dane actually had some, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't all right. The, the, it wasn't quite a whole dog mentally. And as I went to pet the dog, it frightened the Great Dane and he went for my neck. And I, I, I kind of um, threw my arm over my head as you would if something was going to hit you. And so he ended up, instead of getting my neck, he got my arm and my shoulder. And, and what happened next, nobody would, could ever guess. The fellow that was walking the dogs, Mr. McKeegan, he dropped the leashes and ran the other way all of the kids that we were with, all of these eighth graders and seventh graders just started to scream and, and kind of, you know, they started to go in every which different direction. It was just mayhem. And the dog just continued to lay into me. And he was, he was, he was literally eating my arm and my shoulder. And the guy's just running away. I go into complete shock, fall on the ground. The dog's, you know, just, you know, chewing my arm up. And out of nowhere, um, this uh, fella, that he, kind of this mystery man that we never were able to think rushes in. And as the dog was getting ready to bite my throat, he kicks this great Dane off of me and puts wow. me, up, pulls me over his shoulder and brings me through the school, um, wow. right through kind of the cafeteria. You can imagine it was very messy. It's terrible sight. They take me into the, um, into the, the, um, the school, you know, medical room or whatever that would be in the office I'm bleeding everywhere. I'm, I'm losing enough blood to die. They call the ambulances. They get me to the hospital. And what ensued there was terrible for a young boy. They separated me from my mother. They started sticking me full of you know, shots and needles. It was just awful. The anxiety that that followed after these surgeries as they repaired my arm and my back were terrible. And what ended up happening for me was I ended up missing the rest of that school year almost um, entirely like a lot of it. I had already been held back once for dyslexia. I struggled with learning. And so I was in a bad state. And not only that, I had such terrible anxiety that I couldn't even hardly go to school or be alone um, with my, you know, away from my family, with my friends. I would have these anxiety attacks everywhere I went. I couldn't sleep because I had all these nightmares. And my parents realized this boy is going to need some help. He's messed up. So they started taking me to a child psychiatrist named Martha. And she, um, you know, every Thursday for about five years after this, I would go see Martha at 4.30 on Thursdays. You know, and as a young boy, uh, you know something's wrong with you when an older – when you meet with an older woman once a week and she, st- she she puts in front of you pictures of black and white figures and asks you what you see.
1: <laughs> You're like, isn't this on a movie somewhere?
0: Yeah, right. You, you, kind of, you kind of know that something's wrong with you if, if that's happening. But, but on a positive note, let me tell you what happened. She used a listening framework. That was empathic in nature. Where every week I would go and, and she would talk to me about my nightmares, and she would talk to me about the anxiety attacks I was having, and she would listen to me. And you know, I would talk to her for an hour, but it was mostly me talking. And over this course of these uh, years of me seeing Martha, and I wouldn't dare tell anybody where I was going on Thursday. I lied to all my friends. There was no way I was going to tell them that I had a shrink. Um, but I stopped seeing her when I had my last anxiety attack in uh, seventh grade, and I you was know, st- almost a little bit emotional, so I kind of I kind of fully pulled it together finally. I was able to do sports again you know I, whenever uh, my body was pressed really hard i 'd break down and cry and so in the hockey locker room, I played hockey i 'd get made fun of a lot because whenever we skated and had to skate hard, all the kids would make fun i 'd break down crying, and the kids would make fun of me in the locker room, and so I ended up you know quitting several teams and it was a terrible time for me as a kid. So finally, I get past this, and I'm able to like reengage in sports, and I stop having anxiety attacks and all my friends. And later, so now if I fast forward, I, I'm, I'm in Canada, Toronto on a, on a service mission, and I'm doing nonprofit work. And I start working with uh, people that have you know, pretty serious addiction problems. And I realized that in order for me to understand them, I needed to learn what Martha had done with me. And so I, I started to look it up, and I, and, I, and I was stimulated by some of the material that we were, we were using in our nonprofit program, which was called How to Use Empathy. And that made me think, when I started to read about empathy, that this is what Martha must have done, plus more things from a psychological perspective. So I started to read about empathy and how you could show empathy to other people, and I started to employ that in the nonprofit work that I was doing. And the results were incredible. I mean, I went from struggling with various people to just learning almost everything about people's past, the context for what was going on in their lives. And I started to feel and see them different. Instead of seeing them as addicts that were just screwed up, I started to see them as humans that mattered and that could be helped. And their humanity just helped me. I mean, as I started to empathize with them, I started to believe that they could make different choices. And the success was wild for me.
1: Okay. Is it just straight magic? the difference with somebody who's supposed to be helping <laughs> once they start believing the other person can get it done. Like that is such a different effect, right? When you actually believe in the capacity for the other person to change.
0: Yeah, I love how you said that. It is like magic. It's like, it's like you go from seeing people as, just lazy or broken or unwilling and you kind of are passing all these judgments in your mind to all of a sudden seeing somebody as a person with tremendous capability and potential and your commitment to work with them changes. You, you fundamentally go from feeling like that they're a bother to feeling like that they are worth the world and that if you invest energy into them, they're no longer a liability. They're you know Everything that you do, they're an asset in life to, to humanity. And yeah, it is. I love how you say that. It's it's magic when you start to, to really believe in somebody's capability to change. Um, so for you,
1: you start listening and then you start to get that belief.
0: And as I started to get that belief, um, and now I fast forward back to um, – I started having success working with people who had these serious problems. And I stopped doing that nonprofit work and now I find myself years later in, in Germany with my wife telling me that I need to listen to these – these Germans to to um, uh, to save this contract and 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 I and at first I was like man I just don't know how I can apply this so what I did was I thought I'm just going to not tell anybody what I'm doing I'm just going to go grab people and sit down and I'm going to start empathizing and listening with them through refre- re- reflective listening and through um, open ended questions. Uh, one at a time. So I went and sat this um, – the program manager down and just said, hey, listen, I just want to – German guy American guy? German guy. huh?" And went sat him down and said, hey, listen, I-, I asked the ultimate open-ended question. I would just really love for you to tell me how you think I can fix the problems that I've brought to the table. <laughs> um, and of course he had an earful. You know, he had a lot to say. And as I listened to him and really empathized with him and, and, and did reflective listening and open-ended questions, we went from – Talking about how I was screwing everything up and how I didn't understand uh, Siemens culture and customers to all of the problems that he had had within his organization with other people that had really hurt him and wronged him and the reason why he wasn't really willing to work with some of the other groups that we were working with. Mm. And That's that's a, a massive change. Uh, in, in the dialogue, in the conversation. And it helped me understand differently why we were failing and some of the things that we were failing. And maybe it wasn't all about me. So I decided, okay, hey, that went pretty good. Nothing was six. No problems were solved. But I had a different understanding for him. I had some reverence for the reasons why he was doing what he was doing. And so I started to do the same thing with everybody. I went to the sales manager, did the same thing. Just the same exact scenario occurred. We went from talking about why I'd screwed things up so bad to uh, why he had been hurt by people in his career and why he didn't believe that this particular customer was going to listen because they had screwed him out of some money prior to you know um, this deal. And you know, once again, I went from you know focusing completely and entirely on myself and judging him for not w- willing to work with me to really understanding his world and and really recognizing that he was in a hard position. And I felt some reverence for that. So if I were to fast forward, I can, you know, continue to uh, repeat this process and then even draw people together so we could, you know, try to create a common understanding. And the results were fantastic. Six months later, the project was – won the contract. It It was really going well. It was a complete success. Uh, and, and um, I mean, there was definitely lots of trouble, lots of problems. There's never a big contract without problems. But we were working together as a team. We were really coming together and we were, we were the, all the strategic capability and talents that were completely inactive were activated. And people started to work together to create a solution that we couldn't have come up with prior to that to solve the problems. And um, it, was, it was a wild success. And this simple thing of just listening to people – it helped us remove all of the barriers. And I like to think about it this way. All of the brick walls that have been built up to justify people's worldview and the reason why they thought that they were right and other people were wrong, as we listened to each other, those brick walls, the same bricks that were used to build those walls to create those political silos, they were refashioned into bridges. And when that happened, the work really started.
1: Mm. It is fascinating that, like, all these stories we tell ourselves about other people um, that we're just convinced of they're this kind of person and all these hurdles of why stuff can't work. It, it's wild how much that can change once someone feels different about someone else and how like that sincere or what you're calling empathetic listening, like <laughs> what a high probability that has in that shift.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that we go from feeling paralyzed, having all of the reasons why something can't work, to, um, you know, and just judging people, you know, we've decided, like you said, you know, we, we, we've, we've made up our mind, we've, we, we tell our, the stories in our minds and, on why things won't work and why we can't work with people to instead, having dialogues that open us up to new ways of thinking. And then what happens in there is you get to a point to where you can actually invite somebody to say, Kent, you know, now that we're understanding each other, are you willing to try to create something that's better than what you or I could have come up with on our own? And in a group, you can, you can say literally, let's go for the disruptive solution. You know, I, I like to say it this way when I'm uh, sharing these ideas with executives that context is king. We've all heard that, right? That context is king. And, and that is definitely true when it comes to empathy. When we empathize with people, we start to understand the context of people's lives. And that gives us a new definition for the content before us, which is what they're doing right now. Without that context, we cannot understand that content, and it, it, it creates a handicap. It creates an inability for us to really be able to work with each other in order to unlock each other's unique capability and, and, and to create something wonderful.
1: Yeah, no kidding. So, so uh, finishing off this story a bit, you know, we go from this breakdown to starting to listen to people. And, and tell us tell us about the product that actually got created once people started, you know, once the once some of those stories people have been telling about each other started to change.
0: Well, what we we started to be able to do was take advantage of everybody's capability, and so we created a, a cloud-based solution which was ahead of its time, first uh, geographically redundant cloud-based solution in Europe to bring all of the U.S. Army's um, telephony management systems into uh, a you know a, a um, a geographically redundant uh, cloud, and geographically redundant means it's if if you blow one side up, the other side uh, you know still operates and everybody's okay. And so it was the first time that we had been able to you know somebody had created a system like this um, in the armed forces and in Europe. And so you know I attribute that to the the genius of the team, and the genius was always there. But if I contrast that to the early days when we were struggling and fighting and playing political wars and building walls. To building bridges and uh, really being able to take advantage of everybody's talent, we were able to tap into the capabilities and the knowledge and the talents of what everyone actually had to offer. All of the money that we dump into strategy became relevant, and so I mean, in the end, we created a world-class solution. It was ahead of its time, and you know that that never could have been unlocked without our ability to first understand each other and to break down those walls.
1: Well, and for. You know, I, I feel like, you know, on the show we're always talking about innovation, and I feel like what you guys did was so interesting of, um, you know, so there's the, there's the DSN that the military uses, you know, essentially their internal telecom company, but there's all these people who are deployed where it doesn't work for calling home and actually talking to their family, the one phone call they want to make most, right? And so for you guys, and can you talk about that for a bit about like how you took what you had and and... Did these new iterations to finally get something that actually solved the need that was out there?
0: Yeah, well, uh, this so this project that you mentioned, and I love that you brought this up, is so a few years before this. We, oh, sorry. Yeah, so that th- th- that's um, th- that's relevant. It seems I'm confusing right? them. <laughs> It's the exact same thing. What happened was we were out, you know, um, working on, on some bases and started to hear that people that were deployed weren't able to, um, they weren't able to really connect with their family because their family weren't on the DSN network. They were, um, they were on their, you know, the standard commercial network. And so these people who are deployed couldn't make these calls. The one call a week that they get. To, for 30 minutes that's what they're guaranteed it's called a morale call to be able to dial back to their family they weren't able to do it because the switchboards the operators were overwhelmed with making these connections where they would bridge the call between the DSN network and the family's home line or their cell phone and so you know this is this is innovation from an empathic perspective um, it, it, all in the same way. We started to really listen and say, well, what's the real problem here? And why why doesn't this work? And we started to see things from the family's perspective and from the troop's perspective. And we stopped seeing things from the network operator's perspective because the solutions that were being put in place were all meeting the needs of the people that were managing the networks not the people that were trying to use the networks and so we co-developed with Northrop Grumman a solution called MoralMinder Minder where it enabled people to dial into a system that was uh, managed by you know a software platform to then put in a number and a pin code to be able to offnet to connect to their family members and what we ended up ultimately doing was enabling millions upon millions of calls that weren't happening um, from service men and women to their family members, but it's the same exact thing. In the beginning days, we were seeing things entirely from the network operator's perspective. But as we started to empathize with the f- end users, with the family, and with the people that were deployed, and, and by the way, what did that look like?
1: Was that one-on-one calls? Was that was that surveys? What did that what form did that take?
0: Everything you just said, one-on-one calls, surveys. It actually started. The whole idea started by just overhearing. Um, a pretty sad conversation in, uh, in in the mess hall, where there was somebody who was crying that they hadn't been able to talk to their uh, husband for weeks, and they were in a difficult circumstance, and they were um, uh, going through hard times from a relationship perspective, and obviously being deployed doesn't help that. And, and, and it was the emotion of that call, I mean, of that of that overhearing that conversation that started further research. And then from there, it went to one-on-one conversations and surveys and um, and exploring things from both, um, you know, end users' perspectives. Uh, I mean, this solution didn't even exist. I mean, so this was a completely disruptive solution. I mean, there, there was the, – no one was thinking this way. Uh, but as we listened to people's struggles and then started to listen to the, op- the network owners on why they hadn't provided such services, we, we were able to innovate a brand-new solution and uh, really disrupt the way that morale calls were being handled.
1: So – I feel like, you know, people get told all the time, listen to your customers, have empathy, you know, you know, I love Brene Brown and certainly the, the idea of, you know, being vulnerable people, they, they talk about this, but they don't necessarily always give us the context of like the examples of the story of when they did it and what happened. And so for me, I like hearing this, like, you know, it wasn't some official thing that was like a decree from on high thou shalt make these phone calls easier for staff members. It's Somebody listened to a real problem in the wild, and and obviously brought it back to your group.
0: Yeah, you know what? When, when you say that, I think of this. If I fast forward beyond that, and here I am in Silicon Valley working with executives. Here, I was um, I was part of creating an offsite where we could you know create space for executives to meet with us um, at a really nice resort out of Napa to give them a, a full day to be able to do life design and. You know one of the interesting things about that was is you know we're obviously hyper connected and we're struggling to have space to think and so we knew that that was you know a critical thing to be able to provide for executives and that was part of the reason why they were coming, but they would come out and meet with us, and they would you know had this incredible design day and both for their companies and their families. And they would work with a design partner and then they would want to go back and implement those ideas. And this was the interesting thing that happened as I was doing coaching with these executives. And some of these executives are are operating some of the, you know, the best companies in the world. They're very talented people. They've been educated at the very best schools. As I was listening to them, they would say, yeah, you know, it was was great. The offsite was amazing. They were super happy, very complimentary. But They would say, I would ask them about the results, and they would say, Well, actually, it's kind of been a disaster. You know, I came back, people felt like I was just trying to shove ideas down their throat, uh, and, you know, it just didn't really work with my wife. (laughs) and, and and think about how often that that happens. You know, I think that a lot of people are, are in fear and trepidation when their boss goes away to a conference. <laughs> what are they going to come back with? Well, I mean, flavor of the week. Yeah, what flavor of exactly? the month. Whatever. People are already feeling overwhelmed. It's like you know we don't want him to come back with or, or her to come back with all these ideas and, and then tell us that we've got to do even more. I mean, I've heard that so many times over and over again. It's like the fear that uh, of somebody returning from an idea from a offsite or an idea uh, an ideation session somewhere else. And I started to say, well, let's try this listening platform. Let's start empathizing with others. So let's go back and you know, present to them what you learn and what you're thinking about, but use that as an opportunity to figure out where they are. Ask them what their opinion is. Ask them what they think. And, and as you empathize with them, my guess was, as I you know, share this with them, that what will happen is, is they will move away from the ideas that you're presenting and into their own world. And, and they'll hit it hard and start to show you all of the reasons why they're overloaded and that they're frustrated or certain things aren't cooperating with them uh, or certain people aren't cooperating with them and all of the problems that they're having. And with, without that shift, if you don't really understand them, without their context, there's no way in the world you're going to be able to take whatever good ideas that you have and implement those in a strategic way. They will just be alien and, and, and seen as hostile efforts because until we deal with what's really going inside of our team members until we really can explore and understand what people are thinking and what they want. You can't create mutual transformational strategies because they have to be taken into consideration if you're going to ask them to join up with whatever new thing, new flavor of the week that you want to accomplish. And here's the second thing that happens. If we empathize with people and we really understand what's going on inside of them and then we ask them to do the same with us, now we're in a position to be able to take all of that context and create something better, something that's more informed, something that really meets the needs of all the stakeholders, something that reaches the reasons why they're trying to operate and why they're there. Uh, and this gives us the ability to face the real obstacles. But oftentimes, without empathy, we will never actually get to people's real whys, real uh, what, what do they really want, and to see obstacles from their perspective. And so we'll create these half baked solutions, try to ram them down other people's throats. And, well, we all know what happens. They never get implemented, or they create such political uh, silos that they cause us more trouble than they were worth in the first place. Sure.
1: We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30-minute episodes, so we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes and to learn more about child rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. At Farmers Insurance, we have concrete evidence that parking under an industrial cement mixer. That's just asking for trouble. Seen it? Covered it.
0: Click for more. We are Farmers.
1: Bum, 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 bum.
0: Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.